You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. Now we want to turn our attention back to the book of Nehemiah that we started last week. And the the series is about uh, the God who restores. And of course, Nehemiah, the the focus is the restoration of the walls, but it's much, much more than that. It's the restoration of his people, bringing them back from captivity, and not only giving them the security of the walls, but, but leadership, uh, refreshing their memory of the law of God, correcting areas where they, they've fallen into trouble, and giving them a hope that God's plan, uh, which runs throughout the whole Old Testament, is not finished. He's not done but it's going to continue all the way until Messiah comes, Jesus, in the New Testament. So he's restoring his people to that hope and that promise. This week, I want to look at this idea of agency. Uh, Agency, of course, means effort, work, action. And the idea of of what part does God play in this? What part does man, does Nehemiah, and the residents of Jerusalem and Judea play in the restoration of God's people. Some of you have read um, books about God's miraculous dealing with people, particularly those of the religions that are very resistant to Christianity, such as Islam, like Miraculous Movements and other books. Some of you may have seen those. And in those books, it recounts story after story about how God will appear to people of these other religions, particularly in a dream. Right and and begin to reveal himself. This supernatural act. Uh, many of the people who work consistently with those um, from the, the faith of Islam affirm that without that sort of supernatural intervention, very very few people from those religions are going to move towards Christ. And we have story after story after story of those occurring. This is God's agency. He's at work drawing them. But one of the most um, well-known mission researchers is a man named David Garrison, and uh, he has done extensive research on gospel movements, particularly among Muslim peoples. He wrote a wonderful book called uh, Fresh Fire in the, in the House of Islam, and he tracked with careful research um, hundreds of movements among uh, Muslim peoples around the world. And in conversations, personal conversations I've had with David, I've asked this question about agency, uh, is it simply God at work, or is there something else? And he, he told me, he says, in all these stories that he's researched, where God's revealed himself like in a dream, he says the dream always involves that person finding a believer. That the gospel isn't just simply delivered in the dream, but the dreams will say, I want you tomorrow to go to this market, and there you will meet a man. That sounds familiar from the New Testament, doesn't it? When Saul was struck uh, blind and um, Ananias was sent to tell him the message. And so in all of these, these examples that David had researched, yes, God was the one who supernaturally initiated and started, but yet there was a role for us to play. There was someone to deliver the message, which confirms what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, right? He says, how will they hear? How will they hear the gospel unless someone is sent? Unless a messenger is sent. So we see that 
uh, throughout the scriptures, throughout our experience in, in, the, in the church, that God works, but we also have a part. There's human agency. And that's the point. God uses human agency. He uses our head, our thinking. He uses our heart. He uses our hands to accomplish his purposes. And the primary purpose, of course, is the spread of the kingdom of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That the knowledge of Jesus would move throughout the entire world. And we have an essential part to play in that. Let's see if we can see that confirmed in the book of Nehemiah. As we move to chapter 2, verse 7. That's hard to read, isn't it? But I'll read it aloud for you. In verse 7, it says, this is Nehemiah speaking, I also said to him, and he's speaking to the king of Persia, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter, and the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So we see God at work. God is at work in the heart of the king. He doesn't have to respond to Nehemiah's request. He probably could care less about a little city on the other side of his empire. And yet God works in his heart so that when Nehemiah comes and asks for these things, the king's heart is moved to grant them, to generously grant them, that letters are going out for timbers and resources and even an armed guard as Nehemiah travels from the area of Persia in the east, all the way across the, uh, the, through the rivers of the Euphrates and Tigris, down into the Holy Land in the west. A very dangerous journey at the time. None of this happens if God hadn't supernaturally worked and moved in the heart of the king for it to occur. So we see God at work in the restoration of his people, in the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. But we're also going to note that man works. And that's our next slide. And so he says in verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went, through the, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through because there's so much rubble from when the, the Babylonians had destroyed the city hundreds of years before. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone, or what I was doing, because yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. And the next side says, And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start building. 
So they began this good work. Here's a quick map of the city just to describe the action. You can see there near the bottom that there's a valley gate. That's where he exits. And he moves down uh, towards the bottom, the the dung gate. There uh, near the fountain gate, he gets blocked by the rubble and he proceeds on, on foot up past the water gate. And then just examining the state of the walls and the gates. And then he makes his way back uh, and re-enters uh, in the valley gate. He went out at night with a few others, not mentioning uh, to the officials what he had been doing. But I want you to see just in this passage that Nehemiah is working, that there's, there's human agency in this whole endeavor to rebuild the walls. So let's go to the next slide. So first of all, we see planning on his part, don't we? Planning that began back in Persia, where he knows what he's going to need. He's going to need timber and other resources, security. So he's asking the king of Persia, will you supply these, these items for me? And because we saw that God was working, he was graciously given those resources. But there's also assessment when he comes to the city. He doesn't just walk out and say, hey, well, let's start. He first of all has to figure out what is it that needs to be done. And so at night, he travels around and and surveys the city. And even that that night trip shows a bit that uh, there's a sense of strategy in this planning. Uh, Perhaps he doesn't want to spook those who are going to do the work by showing up and saying, hey, everybody, I'm here to get you to work. (laughs) But probably more simply because we're going to see later on that there's opposition. And he has, to, he has to plan carefully how he organizes the work and how he announces the work. So there's not just simply a, a, a confusing mess of everybody trying the, to rebuild the walls on their own. So I think in these, uh, just these, these few verses, we see that, that Nehemiah is, is, is taking leadership, He's planning, assessing, resourcing, creating a strategy. This is his agency. He's doing this. Of course, under the the care and the direction of God, but he's the one who's doing this work. He's using his head. But secondly, also is using his heart in this idea of of agency. That's our next slide. And that he's, he's motivating, right? He's motivated, and we saw that last week that he had this deep concern and love for the people of God. And he was broken when he heard the news that, the, that the, the, the city was in trouble and distress. And he weeps before God, and it drives into prayer before God because he so highly values the people. That's certainly part of it. But we see here that he's using the, the, the emotional aspect of man and, and how man operates to motivate for the work. He reminds him of the need. He says, look, as he comes and talks to the officials after he's made his trip around the wall, he says, we're in trouble. There's a need here. And we talked briefly last week about how in ancient cities, the walls were, were so important for security. These are hostile times. Jerusalem is surrounded by hostile people. They don't particularly care for the Jews or their welfare. And to live in a city with broken down walls is, is just to be without security. So there's a definite need for the wall. But then he also appeals to their identity. He says, look, we are in disgrace. We live in a city that just, in a sense, brings shame and disgrace upon us because it's broken down, it's, it's, uh, it's destroyed. 
And uh, I mean, this is just simply a truism. Anytime you can connect something to people's deep felt identity, you have really hit the right motivation button, right? So I had had a friend who cut his head, pretty bad gash. And, uh, you know, his wife was, was pleading with him, hey, you need to go get stitches. You need to go to the ER. You need to take care of yourself. He just poo-pooed it. Finally, she realized this is not the right way to motivate him. So she came up and she said, you know, with that cut on your head, you really look foolish and stupid. (laughs) He was instantly off to the ER room (laughs) because she had tapped into something about his identity. He didn't want to appear foolish to the other guys. Anytime you tap into a deep-seated motivation uh, 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 that, that tells us who and what we are, Boy, you, you've just unlocked uh, their, that person's agency. And I think Nehemiah is doing that there. He's saying, look, guys, in the, in the, in the face of all these other peoples around us, we're just simply a byword. We're, we're a disgrace. Do you want to live that way? And the answer, of course, is no. And then he motivates their heart by, by giving them confidence. We can do this task. And remember, this is 444 B.C., the walls were destroyed in 586. This is a long time these walls have been torn down. They've been coming back for over 100 years, and they've somehow just settled into this pattern of living in this ruined city, probably because they thought, well, there's not much we can do. What can we do? We don't have the resources. Do we really have the manpower? We have all these hostile people around us. And Nehemiah motivates by building their confidence in the right way. He didn't say, oh, you guys are great. You can do anything. He, he builds their confidence by saying, God's with us. God's here. And he relates the story of how he went before the king, and the, and the, and the king surprisingly said, all right, let's do this. What do you need? Here are the letters. Here are the resources. Here's an army to go with you, or, or at least an armed escort. And so he's able to point to the fact that, that God is clearly here, God is in this process. And so we can look at this task, which seems very difficult. Maybe for some of them, it just seemed impossible. And you can have confidence that it's going to happen because God is here. So he's he's using his human agency to plan carefully, taking leadership and planning, and then motivating people adequately, not manipulating, but motivating them honestly so that they see their need and, and, and they also believe that it can be done by giving them confidence that this thing can happen. And the result is, of course, the hands, these people begin to work. Now we're going to look at that uh, more in the weeks ahead, but I want you to see that that human agency of, of, of the planning and the motivating and the, and the behavior, the actions, all these are occurring here in the second chapter of Nehemiah. So I think we have some good evidence that God uses man's efforts in his plans. But there's another word to say about this, and that this occurs in the context of a fallen world. So all of this planning, all of this motivating, all of this action and building is still embedded in a difficult world. So we see in verse 10, when Sanballat, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this. They were much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, we're going to hear a lot about these guys. 
these two guys. They run throughout the whole book, and there's a third antagonist as well. And we'll talk more about who they are and, and the role they play as we work our way through this book. But I just want you to know that the, these are officials. These are people with power and influence. They're not happy at all that Nehemiah has returned. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Gershom, the Arab, there's the third guy, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? Now, that's the tough one. Because <laughs> if there's any hint that this is a rebellion against the king by reestablishing the walls of a city that had rebelled against the former empire, the Babylonian empire, and was known as a rebellious city, any hint of that would end the restoration of the wall and God's people and probably would result with Nehemiah being relieved of his head are you rebelling against the king? That's a real threat. I answer them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We as servants will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any, any claim or historic right to it. They're, they're working in a fallen world. So God's work among us, it's still done in an environment of the fall. We have fallen minds. Even when we're planning, we have fallen hearts and emotions. Even when we're motivating, there's opposition that's both human and demonic. There, there are real physical obstacles, resource obstacles. Everything we do, even when God is in it. Remember, God is in this plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He's the one who's, who started this plan. He's the one who's, who's been changing the hearts of the officials, of the king, but even though God is in it, it doesn't mean that there's not difficulty. That it still isn't happening in this context of fallen hearts and minds, demonic opposition. I, I think that's very important, and I think it should give us pause whenever we're uh, about to enter into some activity. It should give us pause that if we somehow think we can trust solely in our own wisdom, oh, I've got this, I know how to do this, I understand this, that it easily leads to disaster. It easily leads to disaster. It gives us pause. And that's not to belittle the, this wonderful gift of creativity, of intelligence, of ability that God has given us, but it's to always center those gifts that he's given us back under his guidance, his care, which of course is the, is the word of God. It's the word of God revealed to us. And then God's speaking to us as we draw near to him in these disciplines of prayer, these disciplines of fellowship, so that we're not trusting in our, in our own wisdom alone, but we're relying upon God. So in any planning, any work process, the danger is always that of arrogance. Oh, I've got this. And I think this passage reminds us that all of these things happen in a context where it's, it's just essential. We must, we have to depend upon God and his wisdom. All right, well, that's a good warning for us. It causes us to pause as we move towards our own agency. But let's ask for a second, why, why would God do this? Why should we have this human agency that God wants us involved? Why did he do that? Well, I think there's some larger biblical 
ideas and that creativity and responsibility give meaning and significance. That God didn't create us, of course, to be little robots. Even from the very beginning in the garden, man was placed in the garden to care for it, to tend it, to make it, in a sense, his, his garden. And that the expression of creativity, the taking out of responsibility to work and to solve problems, it gives us meaning, it gives us responsibility. It's, it's what hum, uh, our humanness is all about. You think about how you raise your own children, if you have children. Do you intend your whole life that they just simply only do what you order them to do? That they never think for themselves? They never have creativity on their own? They never take responsibility apart from you? Of course not. Everything you do is to, is to raise your children for that day when since you launched them into adulthood. This is no different from God. He made humankind. He delights in humankind, but it's a humankind that has agency, creativity, responsibility, significance. We make choices. Of course, we are always to make those choices under the guidance of God and the care of God. And in the fall of man, we rejected that and went our own way. And so all of our creative planning processes are affected by the fall. That's why we are desperate to be related to God again through Jesus Christ by faith. That he and he alone is the only one who can restore us back, in a sense, to that garden and that right relationship. So why human agency? It's, it's what it means to be human. It's what God created you for. But also that these intentional actions, this, this intention to be, to be careful in planning, using my creativity to, 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 to think through the right sort of motivations that, that carries us and sustains us into the work, intentional action in a fallen world is faith. That's how faith works. It's not just passive, never doing anything. But it's deciding this is the way that God wants us to go. These are the things that God wants to happen. And when I, when I choose to align myself with God purposes and I intentionally begin to step into them, that's an exercise of faith. That's, that's, that's revealing the faith that God's giving us. That's building the faith that God gives us. So human agency is not only part of what it means to be human, it's actually the means by which we grow in faith. We have to act. We can't just sit back and say, well, well, well God is just going to do everything for me. No, that, 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 that displays no faith that God is able to care for us when we place ourselves and we begin to move along a road that we're certainly not certain about its end. That, that step, that step forward, that movement, when we don't know the end, is an action of faith. So human agency is essential to growing in faith. That's why it's important. It's, it's, it's incredibly important for us that we take the responsibility, the creativity, the planning, the actions that God insists that we participate in. So what this means, I think, for us in general, but I think incredibly important in our last slide, is your work matters. What you do matters. Everything that you're involved in has great significance. And so in whatever work God has for you to do, there's this process, you're, you're gaining wisdom, you're gaining skill, you're gaining experience in life. Hopefully you're becoming better and better at being that human actor, that human agent. 
And he expects you to do that. He expects you to get better in these things, to grow in these things, to accept these gifts, and then to act on them. Your work matters. doesn't matter if you're in the clergy. doesn't matter if you're a carpenter. It doesn't matter that you're, you're involved in, 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 in a profession that's not evil or sinful, of course. But beyond that, it doesn't matter what actual vocation you're in, as long as by faith you're responding to it in the sense that you're working to please God and not just trying to please man. That you're investing your creativity, your abilities, that you're investing yourself fully in becoming what God wants you to become, that you're becoming his agent at your place of work. Of course, that would also mean representing him, wouldn't it? That when people see how you work, they see how you relate to others in your work environment, that there's something about that that draws them, that draws them to Christ. So your work matters, whether it's at home, caring for a home, raising children. God expects you to invest your creativity, your efforts in becoming what he intends for you to become. I think that's important. I think that's very important. It gives meaning to everything we do in life. You know, I was asking my wife the other day, I said, I grew up in the church. I, I can't make my head to think about what it would be like to, to understand the world as, as an atheist without God. It's just, you know, I, I've tried it. I just, I can't seem to get my hand around the idea that there's, there's simply no God out there. And so I know that every single thing that we do in life relates us back to God. It doesn't matter if we're powerful or humble, super intelligent, average. What we do matters to God as we express the gifts, creativity, the agency that he's given us. I think it's incredibly important. And finally, uh, I just want to remark on how this might work now in our time of transition. Of course, we're praying. We're praying every morning at 6 o'clock. We also have a prayer time pre-service. Right, Rebecca? What time does that start? Yeah, <laughs> when you get here, <laughs> it starts. We're committed to prayer. We're committed to God working in this time of uh, transition. But of course, it doesn't eliminate at all our work the part that we need to be doing, the part that we, we bring to this time, which is, is primarily, first of all, prayer. God, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to be? Would you guide and direct us? We believe that he does that. We go to prayer because we believe that God answers our prayers. Secondly, the, the, the action, the agency we need from you is input. We need to hear from you. We need to hear what God is saying to you. You're, you're our church family. There's no uh, super elite, intelligent person here who's got this figured out. We need to hear from the church. So next Saturday, we're going to have a time that's primarily led by our partners next Sunday. There's some other venues of communication that we're hoping we can do as well. I'm not going to promise those, but I think we can. We want to gather as much input from people who are praying. <laughs> I think that's a caveat, right? We don't just need wild opinions, but as you're praying and God is leading, we desperately need that action on your part. We need to hear from it. 
And then finally, we need to be part of the decision-making process. So on the evening of the 24th, when we gather, if you've been praying, you've been thinking, you've been using your wisdom, your skill, your experience, your creativity, we're going to come together and ask God to direct us. We're going to come together. Hopefully, we'll have identified some, some options that really fit with what we've been hearing and the trajectory that God has, has placed us on in the past. And on the 24th, we can begin to make some decisions about concrete steps. We can hear what our trouble is. We can, we can hear how God's presence is, is with us. And together we can say, yeah, let's, let's build. Let's restore this city of God. Will you do that? Your role is indispensable. God is working. You have to work as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for one hope. I want to thank you for what you're doing in our body. Thank you for this uh, book of Nehemiah and how this, in this very practical place, uh, practical need of, of, of building a wall, Lord Jesus, you're revealing yourself to us as we're asking the same sort of questions. How do you want us to plan? How do you... How shall we be motivated towards the work? What do you want us to do with our hands in the months ahead? So Lord, I thank you. And we thank you just as Nehemiah affirmed, your presence is with us. Your good hand is with us. And in that confidence, we ask to move forward. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com. 